This is Ken Forster, Executive Director of Momentum. Welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. In this series of conversations, we capture insights from the best and brightest minds in digital industry. They're executives, entrepreneurs, advisors, and other thought leaders. What they have in common is like our team at Momentum, they are deep industry practitioners. We hope you find these podcasts informative as always. We welcome your comments and suggestions. Good day and welcome to another edition of our Digital Industry Leadership Series. Today, I'm excited to introduce Baz Kuti, the co-founder and strategic advisor of QIO, a company helping to make the Industry 4.0 vision a reality. A technology and business visionary, Boz has held executive leadership positions at GE as CTO Cloud, Emerson Electric as Chief Architect, and Invensys as Chief Architect. Over 30 years, he's brought to market leading software products from IDEA to industry standard, with six industrial software patents and several prestigious industry awards across the UK, US, and Asia. Boz also holds a MSc in computer science. Boz, welcome to our Digital Industry Leadership Podcast. Thanks, Ken. Good to be here, and uh, many thanks for the opportunity to share my perspectives and insights here. Yeah, as uh, as well, it's uh, it's great to feature a, a true digital industry pioneer in that regard. So let's start off with that as a note. I must say how impressed I am with your overall digital industry leadership journey. What would you say is your red thread, and how has it informed your perspective of digital industry? That's a great question, and as I sat back and thought about it, and if you look at the two core strands which make that red thread, I sort of thought about that there's really I was a bit, the ability to see conversions of different technologies coming together. So the dependencies between these technologies and the knock-on effect of those technologies on each other is what really um, I'm good at and, and understood from the very beginning. And then the, presenting that in context to business leaders. So putting in, you know, re, to, re, removing the complexity of it, but simplifying as what this means for for a, for a business executive, so that we can capitalize and make, you know, uh, own market share and so on. So it's really convergence of how did the internet, the cloud, and the cloud to big data, now big data with AI, and as we go into 5G, how all those sort of interconnect and then provide an opportunity from a business context perspective. So that's kind of the first thing. Second thing is that really a lot of you know companies make um, efforts on innovation and in- innovation as a process. But really when you have that perspective how technology convergence is occurring and will occur, then you're really being creative. And I, I really see myself as a creative uh, guy who's able to bring together uh, different technologies in the right time to allow companies to material you know, get the material benefits from it. So creativity is normally associated with musicians and artists and so on, not with software architects. But if you look at the complexity of what we have to simplify and bring to market, it requires a heck of a lot of creativity to simplify that. And so bringing that message into the market so that the strand can be understood by, and a story brand can be understood by our clients, is really, really important. And so stringing all those two things together has really brought me the canvas in which to architect. And then the paint is really the 
the software which is you know making it reality i hope those sort of two strands make sense yeah it uh, they they do. I love your analogy. I might have just call it uh, just in time creativity in some sense, right? Filling, uh, as you say, painting just in time on that canvas. Yeah. It's you know it's rare, at least from my perspective, find somebody who has held similar roles across three digital industry leaders, especially over one and a half decades. So again, chief architect at Invensys through twenty two thousand and four, chief architect at Emerson through two thousand ten, and CTO of GE of Cloud at GE. Excuse me through twenty. 2015. That gives you a very unique perspective. What were some of the key trends that you saw emerging over that time, especially relevant to OT? Yeah, and and, and digital. I mean, really, there's kind of there's no wrong or right way here, in my view. Okay, um, all were at a point in time which were trying to do the right thing. Yeah, um, in Invensys, um, we were ahead of our time. We 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 were pushing ideas to our customers. And this, the technology wasn't always there. It was pre-cloud in that case, yeah. Well, and, and pre a lot of the big data technologies we deal with now. So kind of innovating um, and bringing ideas to our customers and accept that. But Emerson was more pragmatic. It was uh, really technology investment was needed to continue to grow. And growth was a key, key factor. They, you know, Emerson went in my time there Went from um, went to a global company, and um, having the IT infrastructure and as well as the, the various applications into the market um, to own uh, market share and, and and grow into certain markets, especially Asia, required a lot of investment in technology. But our approach, Emerson took, is the problem first. Uh, what are the problem we're trying to crack, and and put that at forefront with the customer and then figure out what the technology and the options are available. So a very pragmatic approach to, to sort of move into a solution selling approach, yeah. A GE really, you know, a short stay there, but in terms of what they were doing was really a visionary uh, approach to own the future, be the pioneers um, of, of the industrial internet and create the path for others to follow. And you know whether you know great a great she's a great company. They did that. They they put it out there and they they said, look, this is what the art of the possible is. And you know people like me you know, followed and and learned a lot of the things which were done at GE around what we now call the industrial internet or industry 4.0. So really, I saw them as pioneers and was proud to be part of that. So hopefully, those are kind of the key trends and behaviors I saw in those those companies. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, you were at GE at a very interesting time, you know, CTO of cloud. So my my sense is you were probably there as a, a bit of a, a predecessor to Predix because, of course, um, post-2015, uh, that became the, the major focus. And uh, and I must say they truly were a, a, a visionary and, and a leader in this space. We, we've observed in prior podcasts that digital industry is driven in part by the virtualization of OT systems, um, much as the internet and cloud companies has virtualized IT systems over the past two decades. To what degree do you see heavy industrials especially moving to uh, move to the cloud? Uh, it's, you know, the OT side, if you look at OT as kind of two, two dimensions, firstly, the systems themselves, so SCADA systems, DCS systems, HMI systems, um, 
the, you know, if, if you look at the architecture of them, it's really client-server architecture, and yeah, virtual, they benefit from virtualization. But then think about them actually working in the cloud. That's going to be, a, you know, because of latency and bandwidth, it's going to be a tough act to, to, to do that. There are some movements in that space. The second aspect of OT is the data. And, and the, the data is proprietary. I mean, there are, I think, 160 or protocols. I once had to create a, a spreadsheet which had to laid out all the protocols which were in different OT systems. And they're proprietary to hardware vendors. Um, the industrial companies have really um, created their own proprietary standards out there for themselves and, and, and locking with, associated with that. So pulling the data out is, is hard. The standardization will take time. Um, there's no HTTP standard down there, which we can all adopt and, and benefit from, like, like in the internet. So over time, that will make sense. But what companies are doing in terms of cloud and seeing it in, in virtually every industry in, in industrials is the movement of that data to the cloud. And I see cloud in really my vocabulary in three, three areas. One is what I call puddles, ponds, and lakes, yeah. uh, if that makes sense. Because of latency and bandwidth, um, yeah, you've really got to have a, a puddle at some point in the factory or near the equipment so that you can actually make real-time uh, changes with the operator and then have an aggregation of that at the plant level, um, as, as what I call the pond. And then those two are synchronized, synchronizing to a lake and so people are jumping to the lake, but really forgetting about the pond and the puddle, if that makes sense. So I see a OT hybrid cloud coming together. Um, the hybrid is these three um, constructs of uh, ponds. A bit on that, given what you've just described and your unique perspective over time, what do you see as the largest opportunities and perhaps challenges Challenges for the future of, of OT systems. I think the biggest opportunities is in you seen in our in our day-to-day -day lives is autonomous. You know, the autonomous technologies in the car and you know got semi-autonomous you know, cars out there. I just bought a new car and it's, it's got a lot of capabilities in it uh, to help me from a safety perspective, which I just thought wasn't possible, yeah. And so those autonomous capabilities in the plant, so think about an autonomous plant of the future or a semi-autonomous plant of the future being operated. Now in IT, if you look at the IT side of things, there's a, in a lot of automation has occurred, um, both in networks, in the data centers, and in systems and so on. So a lot of automation has, has been, and it still continues to occur. And then we created monitoring centers like SOCs or security operation centers or NOCs, network operating centers, to oversee and manage that. So if you think about a plant of the future, and it's an autonomous or a semi-autonomous plant of the future, where you've got closely human orchestration or machine orchestration occurring, then how do you monitor and manage that from a command center in a remote location, and is, which is the plant is 5G enabled? Or, or a high degree of you know, great Wi-Fi in there. And so if you, if you do that, you're creating what I think will happen, which is, my words again, sorry to be uh, corny here, but really what I call a mock, which is a manufacturing operation center where you are controlling the operation uh, of the plant. And so the great 
opportunity is there um, for for manufacturers to move. And we've seen that in high tech already in China, especially and it's occurring today. Um, and we'll see that move into other industries as we go forward. So I think that's the great opportunity to move into autonomous plants. Yeah. Mm. This is probably a good lead into uh, your uh, the company you co-founded. So QIO, which stands for Questions, Insights, Outcomes. You uh, you co-founded this in, in 2015, really pioneering one of the first analytics firms focused on Industry 4.0. What uh, problem were you trying to solve and for whom? Really, after, you know, as you said earlier, you know, decades in working in the industrials and, and pretty at every area, shop floor to boardroom. Uh, design. I said, well, what's missing? And why isn't adoption faster um, in any industry, industrial? And I said, well, there's a key piece missing. We're forgetting about the operator. The hero at the end of the day is the engineer who makes it all happen. And if you look at what's happened in these industrial, you know, the, you know, the average uh, experience is 30, 20, 20, 30 years of experience. Um, there has been reduction in workforces, so the knowledge is concentrated in a few. The attraction of high, uh, new talent into these industries is not so attractive. It's sexier to go into the, the, uh, the startups in, in the Bay Area and, and so on. And so attracting these, uh, the talent is, is an issue, but the knowledge is with the engineer. So how do we make the thumb essentially the engineer and so we try to focus on that and then what we try to do there is say okay how do we bridge the boardroom to reality gap so the promise of and i've been in many of them the promise of digital in the boardroom with the powerpoints which we put up there and the efficiencies which can be gained and 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 the management consultants and the strategic consultants providing the their views on what the opportunity is to the reality and the time it takes to actually generate the value. And so how do you bridge that gap between uh, the, the promise of digital and the value of digital in, in the plant? And then the third area was really around what I uh, started to see, but really experienced as building QIO. You know, we hired some of the best data scientists out there and we were not getting what we needed. What we'll get in is experiments. We'll get in uh, proof of concepts. We'll get in pilots, but we won't get in into full-scale production in our early stages. And so we pivoted and changed to say there is there's a gap between data science and operationalizing data science, and what we call applied AI, yeah, into the hands of the operator. And so QIO solutions solve those three things. Essentially, we provide AI applications which are the best friend of the engineer. So think about these as augmented analytics, which the uh, operator is interacting with, and it's his best friend. It's a personal coach. It's a, it's a mentor. AI is not a threat. It's a mentor to improve his operational efficiency and unlock productivity, but yet improve safety and reduce risk. So really, that's the target of the personal mentor to the to the operator or the engineer to use the software uh, at the at the at the, um, at the in the plant or at the edge. Yeah. So I think that's what we you kind know, of the journey we embarked on and and had done really. 
You've uh, must have done something right because you guys have accrued a string of commercial wins across companies like Rolls-Royce and Lloyd's Register, as well as industry accolades from Gartner, ARC, or ARC Group, I should say, and Frost and Sullivan. What were some of the use cases that brought you these wins and accolades? In, in, in Rolls-Royce, which was our, uh, our first client and, and our marquee client, is really the fusion of data across um, multiple business units and, and, and with their customers, uh, both IT and OT data. And then you know, about 70 different, 72 different data sources, which historically had never been pulled together. A lot of that was in PDFs. And the business, to come back to the problem we were fixing, is the problem we were fixing was around um, how pre-approval of warranty and maintenance work at the service centers and turnaround time of the engines in the plant, uh, sorry, in the service center. So how do we sort of accelerate that and improve the uh, customer service to our client, yeah? And so what we what that fusion of data did was, and using advanced software techniques, it pre-approved and had a 4x improvement in a business process uh, from turnaround of engines and, and maintenance in centers, yeah. While at Lloyd's, it was, you know, Lloyd's is a 250-year-old company in Marine. It's got huge amounts of data sets across the world, thousands of customers. It is, is a trusted brand uh, across its, its customer base. And so if you looked at their data sources, again, it was in different repositories, different silos that hadn't been brought together. And the context, because they're in Marine, of what we did there was Customers, obviously, fuel is a big cost in the marine. And so if we can take tight external data, weather data, tide data, um, and as well as vessel data, like the movement of the vessel, um, then we can predict fuel efficiency in terms of understanding the best time for a vessel to leave port, because that's when it leaves port, it's when it's incurring the highest amounts of uh, fuel costs. So um, understanding tide and tide height and tide wa wavelengths and so on allowed us to reduce energy costs or fuel costs for uh, marine operators. You know, in some sense, it, it's uh, reminiscent of, I think it was Beth Comstock at the time at GE who came up with this tagline of the power in one and two percent. And of course, Bill Root did a great job of espousing how much value there is in simply saving 1% in energy, right? Or 2%. Yeah. And uh, and so it's, uh, it is these little things that add up over time. And interesting, you know, even the thought about when you leave, uh, you know, the, the dock and how much difference that can make. So, uh, yeah, pretty cool. So I, I, I see that you're often quoted discussing how to scale from concept to full-scale implementation. What have you seen as some of the key success factors for those companies that are fully able to make this transition? Yeah, it's going back to that uh, gift or, or, or kind of mindset around the canvas and seeing a, a complex puzzle um, which needs to be put together rather than the, all the detail within each kind of software components. But then understanding that complexity of that puzzle and pulling that together really requires, how do you know it's going to work? Because you don't. <laughs> you just, you just, it's a bet at the end of the day. And so the principles of uh, learned and, and it's just brutal um, lessons learned in life 
is really experimentation and experimentation with your customers. I've always found customers are willing to co-create if you ask the right question in the right way and can build trust with them. And so customers co-creating and providing their data to you, providing their problems to you, opening up their ideas to so you can co-create with them is, is a fantastic opportunity to validate the puzzle you're trying to build, yeah? Um, and so some pieces may fall off and break, which is okay because you're in experimentation. And so, and then so once you've done that, or we've been perfecting that, it's really ensuring that the glue between this is based on standards. And then going, finding those standards, whether the customer can give you an idea what those standards are in the, the industry. So building the, the sort of foundations of the, of the puzzles and the sort of glue between them is based on so the creases between them is based on these standards, industry standards. So whether it's taking the bet on you know, in 2015 on cloud native, which really nobody sort of moved on to at that time. Um, and we said that is the future because it's going to be a hybrid cloud model uh, as we go. We can't lock ourselves into a any particular cloud provider as a software company because you're going to have to operate at the edge. So taking that bet in 2015 and saying, Cloud native principles and standards are what we can adopt. Was a, you know was the right thing to do at the time. So understanding industry standards both on the technology side, software and so on, but also on the OT side. And there's so many standards out there. So we have a digital twin like a Myers Briggs, for example, for assets, which we call mm-hmm. Parks. Yeah, and one of the metrics in Parks is reliability. Well, if you look at the IEEE, I mean, it's done a fantastic job on reliability. The bottom model for asset uh, lifecycle modeling is just fantastic. It's all there. So when we're building the reliability dimension in our Pox framework, you know, leveraging the IEEE standard was just a place to go to. Um, in our energy efficiency standard is based on the uh, energy star rating here in the US from the Department of uh, energy and so it allows us to align that when somebody's using our software it is built the creases are built on standards and so that's really the thing and then lastly how to what i call repeatability um, and it's not like scalability people mix the two up repeatability as we all know in sort of tech transformation is built on those three uh, pillars of tech process and change management yeah and you've got to make sure repeatability is built into a blueprint, which allows that to occur. So you could take it from one plant to another plant to another plant, or one asset to another asset and so on seamlessly. And so designing in that puzzle repeatability is just foundational in what I saw. So when you look at whole product design, experimentation standards, and really repeatability are, are sort of the core, core, core capabilities I think are needed. Okay. We've uh, we've observed COVID-19 has been a bit of a digital accelerator. What impact have you seen on the space you operate in and, and what do you see as the longer term uh, impacts and perhaps opportunities? Yeah, it's, it's been uh, a massive impact, obviously, everybody in, uh, in the world and good to see now the vaccines coming through and and, and the light at the end, kind of light at the end of the tunnel occurring. 
um, and getting back to normality. But the new norm, what will that look like? You know, what have we learned? The immediate impacts are obviously uh, remote working and, and social distancing rules and so on. But some of the things I've, I've observed and, and seen from my clients are not sort of coming out. Um, one of them is how do we have a magic box so that the, um, the maintenance engineering team, which can't come into the plant anymore, can actually maintain the equipment? So how do you, how do you have VDI, virtual desktop images, to the equipment? People haven't thought of that. So how do you, then that needs to be innovated, that needs to be created, that magic box needs to be created by the hardware manufacturers, you know, it's a conveyor belt or it's a CNC machine and it needs maintaining, well, it's been maintained by a third party um, and the engineer usually comes on site to do that. Well, with COVID and the restrictions we've had, that's not possible and that causes risk um, and, and, and safety issues. So that's some of the things which you know, companies are delving with. Another area is people, uh, customers are, are recognizing that knowledge is concentrated in a very few individuals. And if those individuals got COVID and, and, and you know, things were to happen there, then there's a material impact to the plant's operations. So concentration of knowledge is, is really key. So this is some of the immediate impacts I'm seeing. The long-term uh, is all about risk to me. Um, it's about risk for understanding your supply chains and your, and your manufacturing process, investment, investment more in maybe semi-autonomous and uh, plants and those uh, manufacturing operation centers, command centers of the future. But it comes down to some of the basics. Some of the plants out there, you know, have got, you know, very poor network connectivity in the plant or access to the plant. And so in companies haven't, they've invested in local area networks in their office buildings and so on. And we all benefit from that when we're in the office. But when you go in the plant, the equipment is not connected. The the plant network is um, it's not, you know, a 10 gigabits or whatever, or 100 gigabit network put in place. And then the wide area network to the plant is, is not the best as it could be. So investment in that and investment to um, in, implement, you know, Wi-Fi, industrial Wi-Fi, and 5G, I think, will have uh, will be sort of key changes as a result of companies looking at their industrial footprints. Yeah. When one thinks of the industrial IoT, I say the killer use case is you know remote asset management, and and I think you've just described well, and that is why we've referred to you know the the last uh, year almost now as this digital accelerator because. Most of our portfolio companies uh, are focused on that because we, you know, we only focus in digital industry. So this remote asset management, how do I augment a, a human out on site or now how do I effectively do what a human would have done out there? And, uh, and that's where we've seen you know, the, uh, the great take up much as um, you know, remote workers have all of a sudden seen a great take up in collaboration tools. Um, you know, in our in our conversations, kind of leading up to this, you had mentioned an impending next step, and uh, forgive me if I'm putting you on the spot here, but you know, can you share more about this uh, this next step? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you can see my journey as, as, as an innovator and kind of disruptor here, and I love um, you know, just coming with a, some down. The great musician here, you know, he has a 
a saying which says to reinvent himself, to stay young and, and, and fresh. And I'm really to reinvent myself, going to an area of industry, we're capitalizing on all the knowledge I've got in healthcare. I think healthcare is just prime for, uh, for just adopting these technologies. And if you think about the two of us, you know, how many healthcare records do we have? I mean, look at how many, you know, x-rays you may have had or um, blood tests you may have had. Can you access that yourself? You can't. Yeah, you get a report or whatever it is, or a visit to the doctor, but I can't get my own uh, healthcare records as an individual and be accountable for my own health. And so, precision health is a key area, I think, of the future, and that all resolves around data. And so, if I could take some of the data thinking and the data approaches around data augmentation and data, and using AI in data to speed up, accelerate. Um, these journeys, uh, digital journeys in the healthcare sector, I think is going to be uh, a, a sort of great area to go explore and, and work in. And then I'm going to be advising and working with a company called Modak, which has done this. It's a fantastic company based out of uh, Hyderabad in India. Nearly 40% of the company is female. A great CEO in terms of RT. And I've really got to know them over the, uh, over the last few months. And I think they've got a great opportunities to help healthcare companies and pharma companies um, make that data transformation and, and to help them build those data lakes out um, with reduced risk and time, yeah. The, um, uh, I have to think which podcast it was. Somebody had mentioned we have better predictive analytics for our heavy assets than we do for our own bodies. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's crazy, isn't and it? And you think how, how many of those patterns actually overlay uh, the quality of the data, the availability of the data, having things in a in a standard format so you can look at them, you know, over multiple sources. So I can clearly see how your journey leads you to to Modak. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a great next step. And I think it's a timely next one. Uh, we've featured more and more you know, I'd say what are just generally called med tech, if you will, companies. Mm -hmm. And what you're seeing is the people that are largely leading those have a foot in, of course, you know, kind of the physical sciences being having been or medical sciences and the other part in some type of industrial background. So I think they're pattern matching, if you will, and overlaying those. And so that, it seems to me that may apply toward your situation as uh, as well. Absolutely. In, uh, yeah. In closing, can you provide recommendations of people, books, and or other resources that inspire you? I think uh, uh, people is really coming down to um, kind of a spiritual side of, uh, of me, and I've got some uh, gurus which I've followed over, over you know my, my whole career, uh, which have given me guidance and and, uh, and and kind of the Eastern way of thinking, effectively. Um, and so those, those have been foundational in terms of having faith um, to get through the challenges of, of life. You know, I've, I've moved Africa as a, as, a younger, as a young child to England, um, that's kind of refugee there, and then came over and then studied there, migrated there obviously and lived there, and then moved to America 20 years ago. And so I've, I've you know, moved from uh, different continents, and then, and I had to adjust and 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 make a living essentially. And so, a lot of sort of kind of faith is key there. And in terms of books, they really reflect uh, that thinking. Um, and two come to mind. Um, one is by a professor at 
Stanford University on creativity. Uh, it's called The Highest Goal. It was given to me uh, by an Emerson executive who actually was leaving as I was joining, yeah? So he was in his final days and I was a newbie coming in and I was the first ever chief architect in Emerson's 130 years or so, yeah, ever to take that role. And he said, Baz, you've got to read this because it's going to hold you in good stead. And, you know, as I've, as I've been looking at the book over the last 15 odd years, I really, you know, I'm still scratching the surface of it. So it's by, it's called The Highest Goal by Michael Ray, uh, as I say, he's a professor at, uh, at Stanford. And, and the other one was given to me by my wife as she saw me build my startup. Yeah, I'll, I'll build a startup called QIO. And then the challenges I was experiencing as, as any leader and the disappointment and, 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 and especially dealing with environments or circumstances I'd never had to deal with. Um, and so how do I sort of get to know myself better and the opposites of me? Okay, so, you know, what's my natural nature? Um, and then knowing what is the opposite of that and having that in mind. And so there's a book by, a book called um, Leadership Gap by Lolly Daskell. And it's a great book, easy read, and for all, uh, it basically paints a picture of, well, what's your strength as a leader? But then it gives you a complete uh, opposite view around what that strength means. Uh, and I really didn't look at that, the opposite view, until I re read that book. Yeah. Hopefully those give uh, two indications, yeah. Yeah, those are two great uh, recommendations. I must say, I, I, they, neither has run across my radar. So uh, very original, Highest Goal by Michael Ray and uh, Leadership Gap by Lolly Diesel. Um, excellent. Well, Boz, thank you for this insightful interview. Thank you very much, Ken, and I appreciate all the opportunity to uh, uh, share my learnings here and uh, hopefully they help others in the digital journey uh, embark as well. And and uh, maybe I add spiritual journey because it sounds like you've had uh, one of your own and uh, you're uh, you're very inspirational I think as a result. Thank so you. this has been Baz Kuti, the co-founder of QIO, and if I may add, perpetual reinventor of himself. <laughs> Thanks, Ken. Thank you for listening, and please join us next week for the next episode of our Digital Industry Leadership Series. Thank you, and have a great day. You've been listening to the Momenta Digital Industry Leadership Podcast, produced by, for, and about digital industry leaders. We hope you've enjoyed the discussion, and as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. Please check our website at momenta.one for archived versions of podcasts and webinars, as well as resources to help with your digital industry journey. Thank you for listening.